listeners, you're not only listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial, you're tuned into the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools uh, have been here since 1987 and will be here for much longer too. Uh, and we're here to defend and to promote public education. We've seen many premiers of Victoria come and go, but we're still here. And um, the Save Our Schools people have got some very interesting material for us this week. So Andy is going to read for you what uh, young Mr Trevor Cobal has got to say about the idea of fully funding private schools and then um, saying that they can't charge fees, which uh, Bonner and Greenwald were suggesting. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. This article is a summary of a new education policy brief. The proposal of Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner to fully fund private schools subject to them not charging fees and not enrolling students on the basis of ability abrogates key long-standing principles of public education, namely that public schools are secular and do not discriminate on the basis of student background. The proposal explicitly permits private schools to promulgate their religious beliefs and values and to discriminate against students and teachers who do not share these beliefs. This is anathema to the founding principles of public education. Public schools must remain secular and take all comers, whatever their background, to provide access to education for all and to promote understanding and tolerance between different social groups. Nor would it eliminate social segregation between schools as Greenwell and Bonner claim. Government funding of private schools that charge fees and restrict entry is not the only cause of social segregation between schools. A basic cause is the economic and geographical segregation of households. Fully funding private schools will not eliminate the extensive social segregation between schools in the western and eastern suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, or between remote regions and prestigious suburbs of metropolitan cities. Greenwell and Bonner state that families should not have to pay fees to ensure their child's education reflects their values and preferences. This represents capitulation to private school lobby groups. Families pay fees to access the special ethos and character of private schools, whether it be religious education, social status or an old school tie network. The role of government funding for private schools is not to subsidise the costs of such choices. It should only support the learning needs of students in under-resourced schools. Parents, not taxpayers, must bear the costs of choosing a special ethos. Greenwell and Bonner argue that Australia must follow the models of other countries that fully fund private schools. Belgium, Canada, Netherlands, New Zealand and Scotland. However, the evidence on average student results, equity and segregation is far from compelling. Apart from Canada, these countries have not performed significantly better than Australia in terms of average outcomes or equity in outcomes. Some have performed worse than Australia on several measures. Closer investigation of Canada's performance also shows that it is not a model for fully funding private schools. Only three of Canada's ten provinces Alberta, Ontario and Saskatchewan fully fund Catholic schools and they do not systematically outperform some other provinces on average outcomes or equity. Alberta and Ontario are high performing systems, but Quebec has similar or better results on some measures while Saskatchewan is one of the lower performing provinces. Other factors are the more likely explanation of Canada's apparent success. 
The socioeconomic status of all students and those in the lowest quartile is higher than in other countries that fully fund private schools and in Australia too. Similarly, these measures are higher in Alberta and Ontario than other provinces. Funding per student adjusted for inflation in public schools has increased by much more in Canada compared to Australia between 2001-2 and 2016-17, 37% compared to only 12%. Funding in Alberta and Ontario has also increased by much more than in Australia. Canada also appears to be manipulating its PISA results. It has a much higher exclusion rate from the test than other countries that fully fund private schools and than Australia. It also has the lowest coverage of eligible students in the OECD. There is an alternative way forward to increase equity in education. It is to introduce a Gonski Plus funding model. It would involve re-estimation of the Base Schooling Resource Standard, SRS, and increased loadings for various categories of disadvantaged students and schools. Government funding for private schools would only be provided to fill the gap between private income and a revised Base SRS. It would reduce social segregation between schools because it would end the overfunding of private schools and force them to increase fees, which would likely lead to a greater number of advantaged students being enrolled in public schools. And just some comments here from Jean that I'll add in. Congratulations to Trevor Gobbold for distinguishing between public schools, which are secular, and private schools, which are sectarian. Inglis Clark and Henry Higgins, who put Section 116 in the Constitution, also understood the principles underlying separation of religion from the state and its implication for public education. But needs policy since 1973 have all founded on the private sector gaming the system and the fear of sectarianism if the rich Protestant schools are not bought off. So, good luck. Yes, well, um, Trevor Cobalt is still thinking that perhaps Skonsky's got the answer. Well, of course, um, the skids were put under Gonski by uh, the person who set up the Gonski uh, inquiry, uh, the lady herself, Julia Gillard, who said that no school would lose a dollar. And, of course, it's just been open slather ever since then uh, because the private schools know how to game the system and they'll game it again and again and again. They cannot be trusted. But um, the... uh, Commonwealth Government have got an inquiry afoot about funding in Australia. And the strange thing is that according to Bonner, it's the main game in town, but there's a silence, a strange silence about it. It's gone quiet. Tell us a little bit more about the terms of reference of this uh, consultation paper that uh, Bonner is talking about. Thanks, Jean. Here's an article on the National School Reform Agreement consultation paper. So, gone quiet. The current review of the NSRA, the National School Reform Agreements, is nearing its end. Its consultation paper hit the target in so many aspects and has been followed by a flurry of behind-the-scenes activity. So, watch this space. The expert panel for the review to inform a better and fairer education system invites stakeholders to make a submission to the National School Reform Agreements consultation paper outlining some of the key challenges and opportunities facing the Australian education system. The consultation paper covers the five key areas outlined in the terms of reference. One, 
what targets and reforms should be included in the next NSRA to drive real improvements in student outcomes, with a particular focus on students who are most at risk of falling behind and in need of more assistance for students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, regional and rural and remote Australia, students with disability, First Nations students and students from a language background other than English. Two, how the next agreement can contribute to improving student mental health and well-being by addressing in-school factors while acknowledging the impact of non-school factors on well-being. Three, how the next agreement can support schools to attract and retain teachers. Four, how data collection can best inform decision making and boost student outcomes. Five, how to ensure public funding is delivering on national agreements and that all school authorities are transparent and accountable to the community for how funding is invested and measuring the impacts of this investment. So the expert panel will deliver their final report to all the education ministers by the 31st of October. So watch this space indeed. The recommendations of the expert panel will inform negotiations for the next NSRA to drive improvements for all students, especially those in need of additional support. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Dad. There's a very distressing belief system that's come out of all Perhaps it's always been around, but in the 19th century, it was known as eugenics, the idea that IQ and brilliance are purely genetic rather than environmentally enhanced. But as we all know, environment does matter. And the fallacy of the genetic determination of inherent cognitive abilities is the heading of a very interesting article which is also on the Save Our Schools website, and Andy is going to read it for us. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Inequity in education is the key challenge facing Australian education policy. One of the fundamental premises of the approach by Save Our Schools is that the mean and range of intrinsic abilities, however they are defined and measured, should be the same across different social groups, whether defined in terms of social class, ethnicity, or any other broad characteristic. As the Gonski report stated as justification for its definition of social equity in education, central to the panel's definition of equity is the belief that the underlying talents and abilities of students that enable them to succeed in schooling are not distributed differently among children from different socioeconomic status, ethnic or language backgrounds, or according to where they live or go to school. This has been a controversial area over many years, with a consistent pattern of assertions that genetics determine class and ethnic-slash-racial differences through differences in intrinsic cognitive ability, and that as a result, interventions cannot change differences in educational outcomes by social group. These claims have consistently been contested, often hotly given their social importance, on both direct scientific and practical grounds. In addition, there has always been evidence that there are major environmental impacts on IQ and that social change and intervention programs can change outcomes, particularly for equity target groups. A key part of the case for genetic determination was the claims that IQ or intelligence were predominantly inherited and thus educational outcomes could not be improved. 
It is important to stress at this stage that this argument never had any validity, because as pointed out by Vischer et al. in their review of heritability in the genomic era, high heritability does not imply genetic determination, precisely because the environment can be changed or manipulated to change phenotype. Our experience over the years is that in the minds of many people, there are often vague memories that this issue may have been resolved by the review carried out by the American Psychological Association, APA, which concluded, based on twin studies, that IQ, or cognitive ability, had a significant heritability, 50 to 80%, with the implication that there was, at least potentially, a significant genetic basis to social differences. Most of the evidence was obtained with ancestry or ethnic groups predominantly of European or white ancestry, and were thus most relevant to class differences. It was generally accepted, albeit not universally, that these conclusions could not be generalised to differences between racial or ethnic groups, though this did not prevent some arguing that there was a genetic deterministic difference between racial groups. In the Australian context, the position based on heritability has been argued by Gary Marx, one of the most trenchant critics of the Gonski approach. Marx argues that the Gonski funding formula cannot succeed because the primary determinant of student achievement is parental abilities that are genetically transmitted to their children. Oh, so what he's arguing, that uh, children of rich parents are automatically cleverer than children of poor parents even though uh, sometimes rich parents are just better at playing the system. So it's a very quite distressing idea. And this Mr. Marx in Australia is trying to tell us that uh, children of wealthy parents are cleverer than children of poorer parents because their parents are just cleverer. Well, you know, I think it is blatantly false. Putting it bluntly, he claims that people from lower classes have lower intelligence. While his general argument is that disadvantaged groups are disadvantaged due to their genetic inheritance, he has admitted that this argument specifically applies to socioeconomic disadvantage. He has not been so forthcoming about other defined equity groups. It is up to him to explain whether he thinks his arguments apply to other social groups, and specifically whether they apply to the low outcomes achieved by Indigenous students. Over the years, Marx has produced many variations on this theme, using the argument that when prior student achievement is included in the analysis of educational outcomes, the contribution from socioeconomic status declines and often becomes negligible. The problem is that if socioeconomic status significantly determines prior student achievement, then the challenge becomes to determine which of the two variables is in fact causally involved. But for Marx, the answer is clear, because his view is that prior student achievement is genetically determined. Recent progress in research on this topic has further undermined the relevance of heritability as defined by twin studies and has reached the point that estimates of heritability based on more powerful and direct molecular genetic analysis show that the genetic contribution to prior performance or cognitive ability, or IQ, is quite small, with abundant room for environmental factors to play a major role. Heritability estimates originally were based on analysis of twin studies. Their logic was that since identical twins are effectively 100% identical genetically, while non-identical twins are on average 50%, if identical twins are more similar in a particular characteristic or trait, such as educational outcomes, then this difference could be explained by genetic differences. This logic rests on the assumption, often known as the common environment assumption, that parents treat non-identical twins as identically as they treat identical twins. 
The common environment assumption is rarely tested and is somewhat implausible, given that identical twin pairs are always of the same sex, whereas non-identical twins are half the time of different sexes. In addition, parents are frequently observed to treat identical twins very similarly. If parents do tend to treat identical twins more similarly than they treat non-identical twins, then the possible genetic contribution would decrease, at the limit, to zero. Subsequent research has shown that twin studies often overestimate the genetic contribution to complex traits. To determine how valid twin study estimates of heritability are, a vital step is to find variation at the molecular genetic level that corresponds to the estimated genetic contribution. This has become possible with advances in molecular genetics using analyses known as Genome-Wide Association Studies GWAS, which associate genetic differences that are known as single nucleotide polymorphisms with variations in the tray under study. It rapidly became clear that in many cases, there was not nearly enough associated genetic variation to explain the twin heritability estimates, a problem that has become known as missing heritability. Sounds as if Mr. Marx is a way off the mark, and even with his twin studies. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this is just an attempt to resurrect the eugenics argument, which I thought was very much discredited in Hitler's time. Yeah, well, one would have hoped so. It's very intellectually lazy on his part, <laughs> yeah. I find it very distressing, actually, that it's being used at this point in time in Australia to argue against um, giving more money to disadvantaged students in public schools. Yeah, That's it's, really what this is about, isn't it? It's horrible, it? yeah. It's quite, yeah, quite distressing. As a generalisation, the gaps were particularly large for more complex trays that could plausibly be affected by environmental or social variation. GWAS traditionally used tight statistical criteria for establishing an association, and generally very large samples are studied to increase the chance of finding statistically valid associations. Many studies now use sample sizes in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. An alternative approach abandons the need for statistical significance in an attempt to close the gap between expectation based on twin heritability and effects of SNPs, but the gap remains large for many complex trays. The largest study of the genetic contribution to educational attainment and cognitive performance used a sample size of 1.1 million and has been able to account for 11 to 13 percent of the variation in educational attainment and 7 to 10 percent of the variation in cognitive performance, still well short of the APA-endorsed 50 to 80 percent estimate for IQ from twin studies. In many cases, increasing the sample size tends to produce diminishing returns, suggesting that a full explanation is unlikely to be achieved, even with exceptionally large samples. For example, with educational attainment, an increase in the sample size to over 3 million lifted the percentage of variation explained to 12-16%. to 16%. Even with this level of sophistication, there are still problems. These SNP-based estimates can be inflated by population stratification, associative mating, and by effects based on family environments, rather than the child's genetics. These can be allowed for by limiting variation in population ancestry, and by limiting analysis to comparisons of siblings within families, where family environments are controlled. Once this is done, the genetic contribution to variation in educational attainment drops to 4%, and that of cognitive ability, essentially what Marx claims is genetically inherited from parents and is the basis of differences between social groups, drops to 15%. 
Genetic variation is at best a minor contributor to both trays. The implications of these more penetrating analyses of genetic contributions for the arguments put forward by Marx are profound. Far from being genetically determined, factors such as educational achievements and cognitive ability appear to have only minor genetic contributions, and socioeconomic status remains as a potentially important determinant of student abilities and school performance. The idea that genetic inheritance of cognitive ability sets fundamental limits to student performance for most of the population simply has no scientific legs to stand on. The genetic determinist argument is that a high heritability means environmental and more easily modifiable factors have little role to play, implying that environmental interventions may be difficult to implement. However, the large role played by non-genetic factors means that this argument no longer has validity. Some geneticists argue that the missing heritability will one day be found with different types of genetic analysis. Irrespective of the outcome of future studies, while some additional genetic variation may be discovered, the fact some environmental interventions have been shown to improve outcomes in a number of cases is proof of the principle that appropriately designed environmental interventions can work, refuting arguments based on the genetic inheritance of cognitive abilities. Well, congratulations to the Save Our Schools people for bringing this to our attention. Uh, I think it is, it is, as I think we all agree, very, very concerning that anybody with any academic um, now should be even going back to the eugenics argument, using the genome and what have you to argue that rich people have more intelligent children than poor people when it's obviously just not the case. Yeah, it's really important to clearly lay out why those arguments are wrong. Okay, well, we, I think it's time for a break after that very demanding academic piece of work. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, Aha! Pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? 
Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. I hope you're still listening to the Vogue's program because we're going to be a little bit more light-hearted and talk about the democracy sausage. Over to Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article from The Guardian by Fiona Katowskis. Hail Australia's public school PNCs, the unsung heroes of the election sausage. These saintly sizzlers aren't doing it to grease the wheels of democracy, but because underfunded schools need money, and in the process, they build communities. Politics may be divisive, but there's one thing that brings Australians together every election day, a love of, or at least affection for, the democracy sausage. And while it's never a good idea to wonder how a democracy sausage is made, it's worth sparing a thought as to how and why they came to be. Democracy sausages are not a meat and bread tradition passed down by the ancient Greeks, nor are they, as I once heard an American political podcast assert, provided by the Australian government, as a reward for fulfilling our compulsory duty. While they may seem like mana from heaven, their origin story is much more prosaic. Democracy sausages come courtesy of your local public school parents and citizens association, or PNC. Yes, behind every election day school barbecue is a crack team of volunteer PNCers who've spent a week or two getting it all organised. They've signed off on funding, noted it in the minutes, drawn up the roster and put a call out for volunteers. They've dragged the school barbecues from storage to make sure there's enough gas and checked the fridge to make sure there's an adequate supply of sauces. They've discussed what they'll offer for vegetarians, vegans and the gluten intolerant and other diet options. They've calculated quantities and put in orders at local butchers, bakers, greengrocers and supermarkets, angling for a discount wherever possible. On election day, the PNCers are up extra early, picking up big paper sacks of rolls, boxes of sausages and five kilo bags of sliced onions whose smell haunts their cars for days. I speak from experience. They make sure that the barbecue is fired up and cooking batches of sausages, bacon, eggs and onions when the first voters arrive. These saintly sizzlers aren't doing it from the goodness of their hearts, nor are they doing it to help sausage grease the wheels of democracy. Again, the story's much more prosaic. They do it because underfunded public schools need money. If there's a captive market and the means to provide a processed meat product, why not try to raise some funds? Indeed, fundraising is a core function of any PNC, and quite a lot of it can be sausage democracy or otherwise related. In the seven years I've spent on the PNC at my son's high school, we've run annual barbecues for Open Day, Year 7 Welcome Day, Winter Gala, both nights, and the local community festival. We keep our prices reasonable and teachers eat for free. But it isn't all serving up snags. Over that time, we've also organised, among other things, trivia nights, clothing swaps, life drawing classes, talks by artists, young cartoonists and mental health experts and 
exhibitions of parent artwork. Our hardworking president, shout out to the legendary Joe, has spent hours, days of her free time applying for every grant going. We've used the funds raised for all sorts of things, from buying new volleyball gear to commissioning murals by local artists, supporting the school's curry club and paying for the annual farewell cake for the year 12s. On top of that, we covered costs for things we shouldn't have had to, filling gaps in government funding by subsidising basic but urgently needed building repairs. The PNCs aren't just about meeting school funding needs, they're also about meeting and getting to know the people who work there. Teenagers are notoriously unforthcoming about what's going on at school, but the PNC's monthly gatherings provide a great opportunity to hear from the principal and the teachers and to meet other parents. There's always way more happening below the surface and these meetings allow staff to give background to the various events, programs, challenges, staffing and policy changes and and provide a greater overall understanding of how the whole thing works. Parents or carers can also share their skills and expertise in all sorts of ways and help out by joining selection panels for new teachers and other decision-making bodies. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, PNCs are about building community, about getting together and getting involved. You might have nothing in common with your fellow PNCers other than the fact that your kids go to the same school and you'd like to help out in some way. That's not a bad thing. Working from home has meant that often the only people we see and talk to in real life are friends and family, people like us. Being part of a community group exposes you to people you wouldn't normally meet and unites you around a common cause. Of course, humans are frustratingly human and it isn't always smooth, but that's life and working through or with challenges is all part of it. Starting on common ground and working out from there can be incredibly rewarding. Even if the road gets rocky, at least you're broadening your horizons and maybe cranking up the barbie along the way. My youngest son finishes year 12 this week, so after seven years of turning up on the second Wednesday of the month by Zoom during two years of COVID, I'll no longer be a P on the PNC. I attended my final meeting last week and, not going to lie, shed a tear or two. So here's to the local PNCs, stalwarts of state schools, creators of community, unsung heroes of the democracy sausage. I'll miss you, but if you're short on people to staff the barbecue on referendum day, put me down for one last shift. And that was from Fiona Kosowskis. Yes, I remember my state school constantly doing fundraisers, whether it was a school fete or a poll sit, and we were always raising funds for facilities. It was almost as though there were no capital grants for our little state school. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Dale. It's not just, of course, parents that are digging deep. Teachers have been digging deep a long time for basics in public schools, but uh, they're getting sick of it. And to uh, persuade young people to go into uh, teaching, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, The politicians are going back to the old idea of the bonded approach. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Uh, This article is called A Bonded Approach to the Education of Skilled Workers by Don Edgar and Patricia Edgar. Education Minister Jason Clare's important review of education seems to have lost the plot. 
Secondary schools have been told for years that their aim should be university entrance. That approach has distorted the focus of secondary schooling toward achieving a high score in HSC, while the technical side has been downgraded in both funding and status. Now, Claire has upped the stakes as he says, everyone will need a degree to hold down a job. Many students are, rightly, sceptical. It's as though equity means same outcomes, not just equal opportunity. There's a world of difference, and while every student must be given an opportunity, there's no guarantee of uniform motivation, effort or outcome. You can lead a horse to water. Yes, the world of work is changing rapidly. It's not just STEM IT skills that are needed, and it's not just a university degree that brings higher wages. Australia needs its domestic students to be steered into specific areas of skill shortages with a more realistic approach to funding, which will secure those students in work. The paradigm of free entry for all, followed by HEX slash help loan repayments once you're earning an advantage salary, has distorted the picture. Yet in this current review of HEX and help, fees will remain and the same people who came up with the system are advising government on tweaking that system. Disadvantaged students, high on Claire's agenda, cannot afford to either stay on at school or go on to a degree without some income support. And it seems they don't want to delay major life decisions like marriage and buying a house until such fees are paid off. As well, they are increasingly sceptical of the value of getting a degree in the first place, with dropout rates on the rise. The latest Victorian tracking study shows fewer Year 12 completers are choosing university as their destination, 52.5% down from 56.1% in 2020. Choosing instead to go straight into a job, rejecting the notion that a degree will make them job ready, and perhaps thinking ahead to further study as they gain life experience. This has major implications for how universities operate. They need to become more flexible in structure, loosening rigidly sequential course structures, more open to later life entry, more tailored to specific areas of employment, with on-the-job practical programs integrated with theoretical learning. There are useful examples of this from the past. In the 1950s, state secondary school enrolments expanded, helped by the retraining of returned servicemen and women as teachers for the state systems, but still leaving a shortage of trained teachers. This was followed by offering small-scale teaching bursaries to school students who wanted to but could not afford to complete high school. It was sufficient to cover the cost of most textbooks, no laptops in those days, and was an early commitment to continue training at tertiary level as a teacher. It was targeted at, but not confined to, rural and regional students. Then, for those who matriculated with high scores, the opportunity to go on to further study was guaranteed by a teaching studentship, either primary or secondary, which enabled attendance at a primary teacher's college to do a two to three year course or into university and train as a secondary school teacher, three year degree plus one year diploma of education. This further study guaranteed an in-depth knowledge of one subject matter and a full year of practice teaching under the guidance of experienced high school teachers. Some of the academic subjects in DIPED were esoteric, but special lectures and supervised practice in methods of teaching meant a real understanding of how to teach specific subject matter and how to manage a classroom. Importantly, the studentship covered what university administrative fees then existed, plus a generous living allowance, thus avoiding the need to hold down a paid job while studying full-time. For a kid from the bush, this was a game-changer, making university study a real possibility instead of an unreachable dream. As well, for country students who had no relatives in the city, the state provided hostels with full meals and accommodation. 
They were, of course, single-sex hostels, but located within tram or walking distance of the university. Friendships started then lasted a lifetime. The catch was, if you accepted a teaching studentship, you were bonded on completion to teach in allocated schools for three years or pay back the money. Most of us accepted the bond, regarding a teaching career as worthwhile. After a dip ed, you nominated three preferred school locations and were assigned to one according to the local high school's teacher shortage needs and your own subject specialisation. It was an effective way of filling staff shortages with well-trained young teachers, an incentive for more rural and regional kids to stay on at school and aspire to higher ambitions. In the 1970s, a specialised program for mature age entrants was also introduced to fill teacher shortage. The TSTC, or Trained Secondary Teacher Certificate, was offered by a separate college at Melbourne University to adults recruited from various trades and professions who were prepared to take up teaching as a second career. They were, like the post-war ex-servicemen, highly motivated and life-experienced. The model cannot be applied to every field, but would be worth considering today as an alternative to hex-bound entry for all. Australian regions suffer shortages in medical staff, doctors, specialists, pharmacists, aged care nurses, even properly qualified lawyers, accountants, IT specialists. Why not target such shortages in a similar way? Pay for interested country students to complete a degree, along with living allowances, and bond them to practice in a specific country town in the need of such a qualified specialist. Well, that's the way it was done, and that way we actually got teachers into staff rooms, and they were very good teachers too. Yeah, so it meant that a lot of people from poor backgrounds got a university education. And also, in my experience, the Teachers College people were well looked after. They got their textbooks paid for and they had mentors that helped them through the university. They did very well indeed. It was not a bad system, but um, the Commonwealth Scholarship was a bit better, of course, than getting a Teachers College Scholarship. So just to, to carry on with the article, um, there was a major flaw in the studentship system in that women had to resign from the teaching service once they married. Sexual discrimination yeah. was at its height. Drop that nonsense. And such a scheme could be evaluating in several ways, and the cost benefits multiplied. Bonded training brought young professionals to rural towns and regional centres, often facing depopulation and decline. And because they began life in the bush, many stayed on and didn't migrate back to the city. The newcomers brought energy and innovation, became local football heroes, joined local clubs, they met partners, married and had children, local schools stayed open, and young rural families stayed on. The bond may seem onerous to some, and opposed by those who dislike planning by the nanny state, but the dye shortage of GPs, pharmacists, nurses might be overcome, and rural centres kept alive in this simple way. Direct funding targeted at specific skill shortage areas might be a better option than an unrealistic goal of expecting every young person to go to university, confine their search for a job to an urban location, and face the burden of repaying hex fees across a lifetime of service to the community. Very interesting indeed. I'm particularly interested in then that, that story about having to resign. It was different in different states. Uh, I was married but able to teach in New South Wales. When I went to Queensland and wanted a job, I was told to go home to my kitchen, which didn't please me very well at all. But, yes, we'll have a bit of a break. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs program, I hope. And uh, although there's all this talk about getting new teachers, unfortunately, our young people are shunning education degrees. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Caitlin Cassidy from The Guardian. Australian students shun education degrees as fears grow over unprecedented teacher shortage. So university applications' first preferences dropped almost 20% this year compared with 2023. Graduating high school students are continuing to turn away from teaching degrees in huge numbers. Early application data shows as concerns grow over unprecedented workforce shortages. The data provided to Guardian Australia from the university's admissions centre showed education degrees received just 1,935 first preferences this year, a 19.24% decline compared with 20. 2023 and the lowest rate since at least 2016 when public records became available. Overall, education was ranked 7th out of 11 major areas of study. Health received the highest number of first preferences, 9,008, followed by society and culture, 8,463, and management and commerce, 5,277. The Education Minister, Jason Clare, said in the past 10 years, the number of young people going into teaching had gone backwards by about 12%. Of those who do start a teaching degree, only 50% finish, he said. And of those who finish it, 20% are leaving after less than three years. Teachers do one of the most important jobs in the world, and we need more of them. Claire pointed to new $40,000 teacher scholarships rolling out in coming weeks as part of the National Teacher Workforce Action Plan. The scholarships will be available to 5,000 young people to become teachers provided they commit to the role for a number of years. In the next few weeks, we're also launching a national campaign to promote the teaching profession to encourage people to want to become a teacher by raising the status of the profession in the community, Claire said. 
I want to change the way we think as a country about our teachers and the way our teachers think our country thinks of them. The Australian Education Union Federal President Karenna Haythorpe said it was vital greater measures were taken to encourage students into teaching for public education to remain viable. The federal government's teacher workforce shortage paper released in August found schools were facing unprecedented teacher supply and retention challenges, with workforce shortages one of the single biggest issues facing teacher employers. We are concerned the status of teaching is not necessarily seen as an attractive option for students and that requires governments to invest in attraction and retention mechanisms, Haythorpe said. She pointed to teaching degree fees and the burden of unpaid placements, placing pressure on students amid a cost-of-living crisis. Federal, state and territory governments must take bold and urgent action. Governments at all levels should invest in paid placements for teaching students, proper mentoring programs and lowering the cost of teaching degrees. New South Wales and Victoria have both made significant announcements to address the workforce shortage this month. Last week, the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, announced students enrolled to become secondary school teachers would have their degrees paid by the state government in an effort to fill crippling staff shortages in the sector. It followed a deal sealed between the New South Wales Deputy Premier and Education Minister Prue Carr and the Teachers' Federation for starting salaries to rise from $75,791 to $85,000 and the highest salary from $113,042 to $122,100. A submission by the former New South Wales Government to the Federal Government's Initial Teacher Education ITE review in 2021 acknowledged enrolments in the state had declined by almost 30% from 2014 to 2019. Many high-achieving students are not choosing teaching as a career, it said. Carr said the shortage of teaching students in the state was no surprise. The former New South Wales government spent 12 years suppressing wages and refusing to value teachers, she said. The Minns government is committed to tackling the former government's teacher shortage crisis. We have also reduced teachers' workloads and are lifting the status of the profession. Data from the Department of Education, Skills and Employment found across Australia annual commencements in the ITE dropped by 8% between 2017 and 2020 and completions fell by 17%. Former teacher and head of tutoring company Clever Cookie Academy, Peter Majors, said her top students were not looking to teaching after experiencing the workforce shortages firsthand. The exodus is worsening, she said. It's truly concerning. I've never seen it like this. Scary times. Back to you, Jean. Thank you, Dale. Now it's our time to go overseas with Jeff. It's Jean. A shorter one today as I'm maintaining a cold with, which just seems to be progressing to something like pneumonia. So forgive me for a shorter article this week. This article's from the Progressive magazine, which is linked in through Diana Ravitch's blog, who we follow. It's written by Jacob Goodwin, and it's The Movement for Public Schools Isn't Dead. In 2018, the Red for Ed wave of teacher strikes was driven by community momentum. We need to keep that going. Where does the spirit Red for Ed, the teacher-led labour movement that began in 2018, stand today? 
Red for Ed began that February when educators and staff across West Virginia went on strike to demand better pay. Their direct action inspired strikes in other states, especially those with majority Republican legislatures, hence the name Red for Ed. Educators in Arizona, Kentucky and Oklahoma went on illegal wildcat strikes to fight against the poverty wages and chronically underfunded schools that were resulting in both intolerable working conditions and learning conditions. Since then, the movement has seen ebbs and flows, but that's the nature of organising. There's no straight line of progress, but instead waves that slowly and determinedly wash against the shores, little by little changing the landscape. Of course, there have been other big waves too, such as the Solidarity Strike in Los Angeles in March of this year that saw members from United Teachers Los Angeles, UTLA, UTLA, show up for support staff. The result was major wage gains for support staff, like bus drivers, teaching aides, special education assistants and other workers who contribute to functioning schools. The strike also influenced a significant contract settlement for UTLA members as well. Still, inflation, limited housing options and political attacks against educators striving to do just their jobs have driven educators to leave the profession. For those of us who will be in the classroom this coming year, we need the public to see what we see. Throughout my state of New Hampshire, public educators are confronting a new school year without enough guidance counsellors, with support staff getting crushed by the cost of living and with money uh, that could be used to help our students being used to fund voucher programs. It's the same scenario playing out all across the country. The question now, it seems to me, is what did we do about all of this? For one, we can't stand idly by. We can't believe that officials above us will save us. We must see opportunities to build something new, to create resilient communities, to strengthen relationships between educators. We cannot close our classroom doors and expect problems of the world to go away. We have seen too many times before that there is no stopping the downward slide of gloom unless we meet it with the kind of positive energy force that we bring to classrooms. We need collective energy that exceeds the force of the push for privatisation. This energising force can only come from one place and from one directions, one direction, from the grassroots. It was the animating force of Red for Ed. It is the power of organised labour. It is a simple idea that everyday folks can come together to address the issues that they see every day, issues that other folks don't seem to acknowledge. Each time readers and support staff stand together to bring issues of working people to light, we bring meaning to the idea of a union as a collective working towards a common goal and sharing the same collective fate. Unions, at their best, are built around love for our fellow colleagues and our fellow workers. It is expressed when the voices of the seldom heard echo in the halls, the halls of schools, of boardrooms, and ultimately in the halls of power. Voucher schemes in states like my own are evidence of the need to build stronger unions. We need unions that can make the case for the public good that the public education provides. Unions that are unions that are unabashedly of and for the educators who go the extra mile each day for kids, communities, and the common good. We cannot ignore the ugliness of the status quo with fear driving people apart, books being banned and teachers training for active shooter drills. Each one of our students are too precious to turn our attention away from the work that we must do together to bring about change. This school year, let's recommit to the labour of love that is standing up for public schools, our students and the communities we serve by building stronger and more inclusive unions.
The movement for public schools isn't dead. It's just getting started. So that was a really good article, I thought, from The Progressive. And with that, I'm going to pass you back to Jean and uh, have a really nice day. Well, thank you to uh, Jeff. But uh, now is our happy time of the week for our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Edgars Creek Secondary College. Now, here's a statement uh, from the principal of Philip Adams. Edgars Creek Secondary College is a school that provides all young people with the opportunities to be passionate about learning, innovative and creative with their learning, while developing a strong sense of community engagement and global responsibility. It's not just about preparing students for future pathways in the 21st century, but to open students' thinking to see the possibilities for innovation and inspire them to create their own unique opportunities for the future, be it through further education, training or business enterprises. The aim is to equip all young people with the skills and capabilities they need for economic, social and cultural success in the 21st century. At Edgars Creek Secondary College, the personalised learning needs of all young people will be realised via a highly differentiated curriculum. This will be supported by the use of evolving technologies, collaborative and problem-based learning, combined with a strong focus on strong core literacy and numeracy skills. Teams of educators and industry stakeholders will work together to design, plan and teach a comprehensive curriculum and to provide rich learning environments for all students. The programs will be supported by contemporary resources and the latest research on teaching and learning. Students will build their skills, self-confidence, leadership abilities and community spirit through a rigorous but rich and varied curricula and co-curricular program. At Edgar Creek Secondary College, there is a high expectation that our students will have a strong commitment not only to their specialist areas of interest, but also to their academic studies. There is a recognition that in pursuit of excellence, each student is entitled to equal opportunity, a positive learning environment and ongoing support to enable them to realise their fullest potential, intellectual, personal, physical, creative, social and vocational. The underpinning value for Edgars Creek Secondary College is to create strong and open partnerships between students, home, staff, community and industry groups, training and tertiary education providers. The college would strive at all times to understand and respect the cultures and experiences of all community members through our teaching and learning. ECSC is committed to all members of the school community working together to provide a safe, caring and stimulating learning environment. Such a learning and culture can be developed when based on the values of mutual respect, shared responsibility and cooperation between staff, students and parents. And now just looking at the ACARA MySchool website information, the enrolment at the school is 1004 and the ICSIA value is average at 1002. In the upper 25% parental income we have 12%. The second level parental income is 26%. 
and the third 25%, i.e. below 50%, is 29%. And the lowest 25% is 33%. So really, it's a school which is representative of the immigrant population of the Australian community, with 77% speaking a language other than English and 1% Indigenous students. Now, just looking at the finances, the recurrent grants from the Australian government are $1.9 million and the Victorian government, $7.6 million. Fees and parental contributions come to $320,000 and other private contributions come to $390,000. Per pupil, that is $14,000 per pupil and the capital is $22.7 million over three years. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it is a lovely school there on the outskirts of Melbourne where the, uh, the young people, the young married couples are going in their droves. But uh, they have children and those children need a school and that's a wonderful school. So that is our program for this week. Uh, thank you for listening to us. If you want to find more about us, then you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But from Dale and Andy and Jeff and myself, it is goodbye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.